0: Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Taufik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. As I've mentioned before in previous episodes, I'm currently serving a consultancy with the New York City Department of Records and Information Services as the Project Coordinator for Women's Activism NYC. Women's Activism NYC is a crowdsourced digital archive honoring women across the globe to commemorate the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in the United States. As you may know, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, ratified on August 26, 1920, granted women the right to vote. This was only the beginning of the long and continual voting rights struggle for Black women, Native American women, and other women of color. On August 26, 2020, Women's Activism NYC is hosting a write-in. And I have the great pleasure of having my podcast guest, Dr. Christiana Best, who will be our keynote speaker for our write-in, and I'm going to dive into details. Uh, in the podcast and I'll put that all in the show notes, but it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Christiana Best, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Social Work and equitable community practice at the University of St. Joseph. She holds a PhD in social welfare and is a licensed social worker. Dr. Best is the host and creator of the podcast Inside Out, Outside In which engages in conversations between academia and its communities and is framed by the themes of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Prior to transitioning to academia full-time, Dr. Best worked in the New York City child welfare system for many years and taught as an adjunct lecturer in the City University of New York. She's an incredible, remarkable writer, and we're so honored to have her join us as our keynote for our virtual event. Check out the show notes once again. And without further ado, it is my sheer honor and pleasure to introduce Dr. Bess. Dr. Christiana Best, thank you for joining me today for this wonderful cross-collaborative podcast interview for my Roots of the Spirit podcast and for your Inside Out, Outside In podcast. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest.
1: Thank you so very much. I think this is a wonderful event and I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you.
0: Wonderful. I was thrilled to become acquainted with you through a mutual colleague, Latanya Jones, who is the Director, Community and External Affairs and EEO Officer at the Department of Records and Information Services. The nature of our conversation is centered around women's activism, in particular because I am currently the project coordinator for Women's Activism NYC, which is a project spearheaded by the Department of Records and Information Services to celebrate the women's suffrage centennial. This Wednesday, August 26th, is Women's Equality Day marking the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote in the United States. However, it would be decades before Indigenous, Black, and other women of color could exercise this basic right and the voting rights struggle continues to this very day. So I find this anniversary a golden opportunity to pause and reflect on the legacy, to shine a light on the past and present struggles, and also expand the prevailing narrative around women's suffrage to include a more diverse range of voices and stories. In that vein, through the Women's Activism NYC project, we're hosting a virtual write-in on Women's Equality Day To gather in community to be inspired and write stories about women who have made a difference in our lives and communities, women whose stories we don't know, women whose stories have been marginalized and are not included in the mainstream historical record. This is an opportunity to reshape the narrative and infuse the archive with such a beautiful, strong tapestry of stories of the women that represent our globe. And we're honored to have you, Dr. Best, as our keynote speaker for this event, to share your wealth of experience and knowledge and inspire participants on the writing process itself. To kick off our conversation in the spirit of honoring women and in the spirit of Sankofa, our quest for knowledge by looking back to come forward, I would love for you to share about the women who have given us life, sacrificed greatly, and from whom we are greatly influenced, our mothers. Recently, you contributed such a spectacular story to the Women's Activism NYC archive about your remarkable mother titled, Closing the Door on Transnational Parenting, A Letter to My Immigrant Mother. I would love for you to share with us your inspiration for this beautiful piece and talk to us about
1: your mother. Thank you. Um, Talking about my mother is very emotional. My mother, Pearl Mavis Monroe represents a large number of women who migrated from third world countries or from developing countries, I should say, such as the Caribbean, South America, the Philippines, to travel to developed countries such as the United States, Europe, and um, Canada uh, to provide a service to work. And their services are valued, they're often recruited either formally or informally for these roles. Not unlike their counterparts, the men who are recruited to work in farms in these countries or to do, um, you know, to work in factories, right, when the labor force is low in those countries. So these women, many of them come here and they work as uh, nannies or they work in um, taking care of the elderly or children in these countries, in the developed countries. And they're often appreciated for their labor, but not necessarily as the entire, for, for their entire human contributions. And so oftentimes they have to leave their families behind to come here to work. I should also mention many of them come from Mexico as well, I'm sorry. And so she represents this group of women who are often invisible when we talk about immigration and when we talk about women making contributions to the developed countries. They're often invisible because their labor is not necessarily valued as much as if they were recruited to come here as STEM workers, right? Or to work in the STEM industry. But they make a contribution. And I think my mother was, she wasn't unique in the sense that (laughs) she left her kids behind and came here to work, but she certainly was a very committed, woman with a singular goal of working hard, earning money, and taking care of her family. She worked three jobs at times. She had a day job, she had a night job, and she had a weekend job. And she she used that money to try to get to send remittances home for us so that her children would be cared for. She used that money to build a home here for us so that when we arrived, we would have a place to stay. And, you know, she eventually used her her skills and her knowledge to uh, transition from uh, working in domestic work to working in an office. Uh, my mother was a nurse back home, but certainly because she wasn't educated here and because her um, educational accomplishments wasn't equated to living in this country, she had to work for close to 15, 20 years in domestic work before she could even, you know, move beyond that. So when I think of my mother and I think of her hard work and I think of the the fact that she worked even when she was sick, she couldn't take a sick day. Her work required her to be there, to be present. And oftentimes that meant um, not being present for us, not being available to us, even though we knew she loved us. And so my, I admire my mother, I, but I have to say growing up as her daughter, there were moments when that I also felt abandoned and I also felt rejected. And so it's a combination of everything. But above all, I knew that her sacrifices were a singular goal of taking care of her family. And and it was coming out of love. So I have been able to appreciate her sacrifice, her innovation, her industriousness, you know, the way she... Thought you know this you know I love my country that I was born in but I'm not able to make a life for my children and instead I am going to get on a plane go to a foreign country live with these people I've never worked known before live and work um, at the same place which means you work twenty four hours right and then try to get my children so it's it's a complicated thing and so. I, looking back, when we talk in the spirit of Sankofa, looking back at my mother's immigration journey, looking back at her, you know, the way she had to cope with all that comes with being Black, single, immigrant, and un, undocumented is an amazing thing for me to um, to think about. And I I wish I could say that to her now, you know. So my essay was really a way of saying, thank you, Um, I appreciate you, I love you, I see you, I understand you. That's incredibly beautiful. One of the things that struck me
0: when you were speaking is just the having to make the difficult choice, your mother having to make such a difficult choice at such a young age. In light of both of our respective fields of work, I feel as though like justice and equity and racism and Having these conversations is is ever present, mm-hmm. and I'm curious how you frame kind of that choice that she had to make um, in terms of like from an institutional or ideological level of yeah the impetus for these very difficult choices. what are right. the forces at play that right
1: yeah, put women yeah.
0: In situations
1: yeah, lots of structural forces you know um so the immigration laws, the immigration legislation, really became available to people of color um, in 1965 with the national um, immigration law. Um, so people of color were coming, were allowed to come more and more, but there is always, uh, prior to that, it was more, um, it was open for Europe, people of European ancestry or coming from European countries um, and closed. And I think you know, people don't recognize the impact that African-Americans sacrifice have contributed to almost everything we do, right? So with the civil rights law of 1964, the country was in such a place where it also, among other things, opened up to more people of color, right? So all the sacrifices that African-Americans made in getting the Civil Rights Act to to be passed also influenced other, other laws and other legislations that impacted in a positive way for other people of color. And so my mother coming here, was through those doors right that that legislation the 1965 legislation but even with that being able to come and work getting your status change from undocumented to documented is a very long laborious journey and the invisibility is incredible but also wanting to remain invisible and be in the shadows is just as important for the immigrant. And so lots of people benefit from the undocumented process, right? So employers do because they get to pit other, other groups of color, like African-Americans against these immigrant groups. And instead of paying a living wage to African Americans, they would pay less than a living wage to the immigrants who would take it because they're desperate, or I should say they're more desperate, right? And so there again is another structural issue. And for the immigrant who has to work twice as hard to make the money for to live and to also take care of their families back home, they have to also think in terms of how do I change my status so that I don't have to live in the shadows all my life and that I can bring my children up. So they pay an enormous amount of money to lawyers and people who specialize in this immigration field. And back then, many of them were unscrupulous and they took these desperate people's money and didn't deliver the green card. And so that in and of itself is another structural thing that goes on that most people aren't aware of. And so the immigration law is similar to a lot of other um, laws that we have on the books that oppress people and keep people pitting groups against each other. Most of whom are people of color against each other. So now the immigrant is angry at the African American and the African American is angry at the immigrant, when in fact, the people that are pulling the strings and the people that are benefiting from this are, you know, people of European ancestry, wealthy people, people who have the benefit of the labor of both groups without um, compensating them for their, their worth, right? And their work. So yeah, so that's how I see some of the structural issues. And also what happens oftentimes is these rich American companies go into some of the developing countries and they take all their, their uh, riches, right? They take what their, their natural resources and they strip these countries right, of all their natural resources. So the workforce in those countries have very little choice but to look beyond the country to make a living, to be able to take care of their families. So it's it's crazy how this happens, you know. So whether it's the British going into the English-speaking Caribbean, or the Spaniards going into the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, or South America, or the Americans—you know, you, you, we have to see how the structure is set up and how we're just players, you know. And so, um, when we survive and when we thrive, it's an amazing thing, and we need to celebrate that. And so that's why I am celebrating my mother's accomplishments, you know. Wow. That's why I was
0: so excited for this conversation because I I love to be able to look at kind of the roadmap that brings us to this moment. Because without it, then we're completely ignorant of what's happening right now. Right. Why we see such intense racism in this moment. We shouldn't be surprised if we know our true history. Exactly. And I really appreciate you creating that context and building that foundation of understanding. Because I think that the narrative is incomplete um, when it comes to immigration to this country. It's totally incomplete. Why people leave, the struggles, the structural barriers in place, the challenges, people being enticed to come here, not supported, and the list goes on.
1: Yeah, and there are some parallels to the Great Migration of African-Americans moving from the South to the North. I mean, clearly they were escaping Jim Crow laws and all that goes with that, but also they were looking for opportunities to be able to work, make a living and take care of their families, right? And so there is that parallel process that occurs. And so the question is, why is it people of color all over the world are put in that situation. And that's primarily because there is that narrative out there that we are inferior in some way, shape, or form. So whether we come from another country or we are from here, we are seen as inferior, right? I think both you and
0: I are indulging into Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast. Mm -hmm. I'm not too deep in, but I I can't put it down. (laughs) <laughs> talking about how America, the United States, is a caste system, right. and we racism, right. I think she described it, she said, we use race as the skin, right? the physical characteristics, but the caste system is the bones and the skeleton and the mere foundation of this country. And I think that bringing this frame to the forefront is really important, and not just in the United States, but like from a global perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we have to also look at the global perspective because we this we live in a global world, but I do understand and appreciate her perspective. I just bought the book and I just got started. Um, but I also read her previous book, The Warmth of the Sun, which talked about the great migration, right? So yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: I really look forward to learning your journey to this moment in the work that you do. But before we get started, I would like to hear from you. How do you define activism?
1: Oh. So I define activism in many ways, one of which is sometimes just resistance. <laughs> and I see resistance as being multi-leveled. right? I think we need activists to be in the street, to be demonstrating and raising awareness in that way. I think we also need activists to be in the household, taking care of our children, taking care of our families, working, we need it all, right? For me, um, my activism has been in teaching or training. Um, And I started out just kind of learning about the history of this country And trying to understand through the child welfare system, where I worked for many years in New York City, why is it that Black children are overrepresented in the child welfare system? And then when I looked at it from a national level, I saw that Native American and Black children, wherever they show up, they're overrepresented. And I knew when I went into the system to work, nobody really talked about that. There were these policies and these procedures, and no one really talked about that. And I would see these behaviors that were certainly not equitable, not equal across the board. Uh, If we had um, a white family, there were so many steps that needed to take place in order for us to at least just get to the family and interview the family and ascertain what the issue is. So depending on the religion, we might have to wait to speak to the rabbi. We might have to wait for um, a time when they're not uh, celebrating some type of religious uh, ceremony, right? Or... If it's a white person, then we might have to worry about getting past the door the doorman to get to that apartment or to get to that location or not having to interact or interface with the attorney of that family. With a Black family, we go any day, any time, in, out. Nobody cares what the religion is. Nobody cares if it's their Sabbath and they're celebrating their Sabbath. Nobody cares. You know, oftentimes there is no barrier. Oftentimes we just go in, we investigate, and more frequently than ever, we tend to remove, right? As opposed to providing services. That's the history of child welfare. And that has been my experience, both as a caseworker and a supervisor in the system. And being ignorant, but yet, feeling like, wait, there's something not right about this. How come last week when I had a similar case, you know, the supervisor decided they were going to send someone in a higher level to talk to the family? Or how come we are taking three and four different steps before we go into this household? And we don't do that for Black families. So I've always felt like this isn't right. There was something not right, but couldn't put my my hands on what it is didn't have the language didn't have the framework didn't have the understanding until i started doing some research and i was in, i was working in policy and training and i met um, I met a professor whose name I can't remember right now, but I, when I met him and I, he wrote a GOA report, I think it was in 2006 or seven, where he looked at race and racism in the child welfare system. And he was putting language to everything I knew and understood on in an in, intuitive level. You know, it was like, yeah, this is it. This is You know, this is what's happening. This is the conversations I've been part of where nobody seemed to respect Black families. I actually um, started participating in a committee called the Racial Equity Committee that was part of child welfare. And the more I participated, the more I learned, the more I read, the more I was led to read other books and understand different things. And so I developed my knowledge through that lens And then I started teaching social work school as an adjunct. And that required me to also expand my knowledge in the area of um, race and racism and structural racism in particular. So most of my activism has been about raising awareness and educating people, starting in the child welfare system, about how we, we are doing more damage than good. You know under the the umbrella of thinking we 're rescuing children, yet we 're the impact of poverty is so prevalent, and we the family may need rescuing the p- family may need support, but it 's not always neglect right it's neglect often is disguised, or I should say poverty is disguised as neglect, and so we weren 't able to really tease and discern that in a meaningful way. And we were destroying families in the child welfare system. At least that was my experience, both as a caseworker and as a supervisor. And when I became a parent, I realized I couldn't do that job anymore. And I had to step away from it. I mean, there was certainly a specific case that jarred me to that decision. But yeah, uh, when I became a parent, I knew I just couldn't do that. I couldn't remove, children from their families, understanding that these families were experiencing um, systemic racism and poverty that stemmed from uh, a long history of being excluded from the American dream. And that, you know, substance use disorder and, and Addiction was in fact a disease. And today we are working with families to keep the families together because opioids are used primarily by whites. And so we are approaching it from a perspective that it's a disease. We're going to help the parents, we're going to help the family. But when it was a primary, when it was crack and it was primarily Black families and Latino families, we just went in and took the children. It didn't matter. If, if a parent showed up with a positive tox for marijuana, we removed those children. Today, we're selling marijuana. It's a big industry that is run by white people, primarily making money off of it. And we have removed children as a result of their parents, who have reasons to be because of systemic racism. <laughs> you know. And so I have to tell you that, uh, yeah. Uh, So activism for me is educating myself. Activism for me is educating others, raising their awareness, helping them to understand how the system operates. And it's also about writing (laughs) op-eds. So I write op-eds all the time. (laughs) And sometimes I really get them, I get them published. So that's also good because that's another way of reaching more of the masses, you know,
0: Wow, so many thoughts are coming to my mind, and uh, one of them is because my mother was a social worker, I also wanted to go into social work, so I began my first year of university in Ottawa, Canada with the hopes of my degree being social work and I happen to be very lucky I was under a professor who had a very thorough analysis of systemic racism and the structures and barriers but that wasn't very common and I it just blows my mind to think about a field that I mean of course every facet of our lives and fields need to have anti-racism lenses and like an understanding of the history of race and racism the constructs and mythologies but they don't and And how could we expect a different outcome if we neglect that history and that foundation?
1: Right, yeah. I I think every every discipline almost have neglected or erased any form of contribution from people of color or Black people in particular. And so, you know, In social work, for instance, one of our values is social justice. But what does that mean? You know, people talk about social justice, social justice, and you don't really see them walking the talk and talking, you know, know, really actually doing it in a meaningful way and in a sustainable way. It's about, oh, diversity. Let's bring in a couple of Black students. Let's recruit a couple of Black faculty. That is not it, you know. That's really not it, um, because oftentimes when you're a black faculty on campus, you're one of few. You recognize the structure. You you know that if you want to make it, you you cannot rock the boat. So you navigate that space very carefully, not unlike other organizations where you have to navigate white spaces as black employees, right? And so it is very difficult for Black faculty or Black administrators to really to be able to bring in um, the issue of anti-Black racism or anti-racism issues in a meaningful way. We really have to find a way of navigating the space so that we can try to help a white person see the need to do it. And they can then either act on it because they're in a position to do so, or they can influence the person who's in a position to do so.
0: So what comes up for me when I hear you speak about that is your podcast, Inside Out, Outside In, which engages in conversations between academia and its communities and is framed by the themes of diversity,
1: inclusion, and equity. Right. Absolutely. So I was certainly motivated to do the podcast and to bring in um, the voices of people of color and center it, amplify it in the academia. Black voices and people of color's voices isn't amplified or centered in predominantly white institutions, right? And so my goal was to do that. And so the podcast is not part of the university that I work for. It's my podcast, but it is given that I work in academia and I have been working there for over, well, I've I've worked in several universities in New York City and in Connecticut um, for over 15 years. So I have a sense of it and how it, it it operates. And so my goal was to center it. But I want to say that, you know, as part of my journey in not only educating myself about race and racism but part of my journey, my personal journey, I was really jarred by Trayvon Martin's execution and it also happened again on a deeper level for both um, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. And I think they coordinate with a couple of things. Um, My son was close to Trayvon Martin's age, so that was significant for me, and certainly Ahmaud Arbery's um, age most recently. And both Trayvon's and Ahmad's uh, executions occurred, or at least when I learned about it, it was around Mother's Day, right? So I went, you know, it happened and I went into this uh, funk, this dark depression, this very dark place, understanding how, how insidious racism is and how, what's the word I'm looking for? how delicate or fragile our lives are, you know, because you can go jogging and not come back. You can go and get some candy in the store and not come back. And that, I think, was such such a painful thing to understand. There are so many things that can harm us as people in general, but to know that There are white people out there who feel that they need to monitor Black bodies and monitor it in such a way where they can kill us and know that they're going to get away with it. That part is so painful. I mean, I am enraged by it, but it's also very painful. And so in order to engage, you know, as an as an adult and as a professional, I have to be, you know, I have to engage in respectable politics. I have to get up and go to work and do my job and do it well, right? But what happens to the pain? What happens to the anger? What happens to the rage? What happens to the fear and the anxiety, right? You, you internalize it for the most part. And so in both cases, I found myself being extremely depressed and it wasn't until I was able to make the connection between what happened and that that can happen to my son or it can happen to and an understanding not you know having empathy for the mothers and fathers who lost their child because they just went to the store or they just went for a jog or they were in the park they were bird watching whatever it is it really intensifies my pain, it does. So that pain motivated me to find an outlet such as Inside Out to be able to channel the pain, channel the trauma, channel the, the fear and also the resilience, right? Because we still get up and we keep moving and we um, we're able to partake in life and recognize and appreciate what's around us. So all of that has motivated me to channel to channel it to the podcast. But most of all, I wanted to say that while there are institutions out there that are doing a lot of good things, racism still exists. It exists in your policies. It exists in your colored blind policies and colored blind procedures and colored blind Activities and events, right? And that in February, when we have one activity that recognizes Black people, like that's not enough, you know? And as a result, we need to hear Black voices. We need to understand how these colored blind policies are impacting students. Who pay for their tuition to come here and learn something is being impacted. And I think that podcast in particular really launched it and really um, was able to communicate that. Your
0: experience is incredibly vast. And I'm sure over the course of your career, you've seen, experienced and written your share of policy. I think Ibram X. Kendi brought to the forefront like Let's focus on racist and anti-racist policies. And I'm just curious your thoughts around um, the policies you've seen, what's missing. Like you mentioned colorblind, just not acknowledging our interconnected history of deeply embedded racism. What are your thoughts around various agencies, disciplines, universities, colleges? I would love for you to impart some wisdom on, based on your experience with um, anti-racism work and policy. Like, what are we missing?
1: Because of George Floyd's uh, death, we are at a critical place now. And one of the things that I often see is the reactiveness that occurs shortly thereafter, after an incident but not the long-term sustainability of that. And so one of the things we're missing is having the voices of the people that are most impacted at the table where policies are being made. It has always happened. And so it always starts from the top down. A lot more has to happen from the bottom up. The voices of people who are impacted most have to be at the table and in those policies. And also, when I talk about colorblind policies, individuals, many individuals, operate in a colorblind world. And some of them are not so colorblind, but those of us who are colorblind are not able to see what's actually happening. So for example, I recall writing a policy on um, concurrent planning. That's what they call it in child welfare. Because child welfare has to deal with two things at the same time. They want to be able to um, reunite children they've removed from their families very timely so that the separation isn't so significant that it it creates a barrier to the reunification or a significant barrier to the reunification. And I understand that. Um, and then, at the other hand, they want to be able to provide a family, a stable family for the children and so, when the birth parent isn 't able to care for the child, they are current, they are planning simultaneously how do I get family members to be there for that child? But there are a lot of implicit bias and colored blindness that go that gets filtered in, so for instance. Um, and then they don't take into consideration as much science, right? Um, but there is a lot that I want to say the child welfare system has to hold, right? So it's not just a cut and dry. It's not that easy. There's a lot going on they have to hold. They have to be able to think about what's best for the child, what's best for the family today and in the long run. And I recall writing as policy. And um, I remember saying, you know, we're saying that if this parent doesn't meet the milestone at, at this point that we've put in place, which sound would seem very arbitrary, um, then we are going to free the child for adoption. And we have freed so many children for adoption, and they don't get adopted, right? And they linger in congregate care, or they end up in prison, or they end up Having children, you know, so there isn't a lot of thought around that whole child. Like, how do you help that child so that child is able to have a meaningful relationship with an adult in their life if it cannot be with the parent? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, provide that child with enough nurturing within the system and I have to say that I see when it's white families, like today with, back then it was mostly crack, but when it, today it's white families and the op, in the opioid addiction arena, we have policies that are gentler. We have policies that are more humane than when it's black and Latino families involved. And so, I wanna say that there's a lot going on in the child welfare system that they're struggling with. But I do see that when there's a racial difference, they are more humane with white families and issues that impact the middle class or issues that impact white families um, as defined as middle class. And so I still think there's a lot to do around helping these people whatever system they work in, whether it's immigration, child welfare, those are the two I'm most familiar with, to get to a place where they can see Black and brown people as human beings. And I think that's missing. I don't care what they say, it's missing. Because when it comes to white families, they have no problem seeing them them as human beings and creating and developing policies that would foster... Their hum- humanness, right? But it doesn't happen for Black and Brown families, and so that's the part that I, that's I think is definitely missing.
0: Thank you. I mean, it, it it brings up a lot in terms of like police brutality and different all types of different service agencies.
1: Yeah, and I mean, to- take a look at that situation where I think it was in North Carolina where the nine um, people were in church. And there were, I forgot his name, he went in and he killed nine people. Yeah. When the police arrived, they gave him they put on a vest on him, right? And took him to Burger King, right? And George Floyd is 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 killed in plain daylight? Like that is what I'm talking about in the disparity of treating people humane. Is it wrong to treat that white a man that way. I'm not saying it is, but I'm not, but how do you see George as, or anyone else, you know, Ahmad or Trayvon, all the names we can have, right? How can you see them as human beings, right? Irrespective of what's going on. This young man just killed nine people. Mm -hmm. Obviously those nine people's death did not worth, you know, this young man's life, right? So they protected him, they fed him, they took care of him.
0: When you say colorblindness, the the consequences are dire. I can't think of who has said it or who said it most recently, but if you can't see my race and you can't acknowledge that racism exists, you can't acknowledge that this experience is real. And so I think that in everything you're saying, I'm just thinking about the 400 years to create a system that dehumanizes Black people, Native American people, other people of color, and thus the treatment they receive. And thus the kind of, I don't even, I'm trying to think of the word to describe it, but it's almost like a natural reaction to uh, behave in this way, to treat people a certain way. It is like ingrained in your psyche, So it's like, if we don't look at that, then how are we ever going to try to put a stop to the the way that systems are acting and continuing to perpetuate and permeate different agencies and services in our society? So I'm I'm a huge proponent of like knowing our history, knowing how we got to this point so we can understand like, how are we going to try to reverse this or at least stop it and fix it?
1: And accepting it, right. So um, when we talk about Sankofa and looking back, we know for a fact that, you know, when when Europeans first came here and they started, um, their first labor force, when they couldn't get the Native American people to do what they wanted them to do, was to bring in indentured servants from Europe, right. Mm And then they replaced them with free labor from, of Africans. And what did they do with that indentured labor force? They made them the enslaved, right? So the slave patrols came out of it. And so the police station has this residual um, history from slave patrol. And, so, and, and the understanding that you have to police and monitor Black bodies, and you have a right to decide whether we're going to move from one place to the other. So, all that, mon- you know, and so the dehumanization began there. And I don't think we've ever dealt with that issue in a meaningful way.
0: Well, that's a perfect um, segue as we're winding down um, in terms of like the nature of our lived experiences, but also the work that we deliberately do on a regular basis is very hard. It's painful. It's riddled with trauma. And there's a lot of anger and rage. How do you maintain a sense of self-care, peace, protect your spirit in the midst of the the world that we're living in and also the work that you do?
1: That's an excellent question and a tough one to respond to. So I think I have a couple of communities that support me well in terms of friends who who are doing this work. Um, I have a book club where that, you know, we read all the, all these books that you've mentioned and have dialogue around it, which is helpful, uh, very helpful in processing our trauma and pain, right? Um, I also started a group with a colleague of mine called Sankofa Moms. And that also came out of the killing of black bodies most recently. So it's all about, uh, it, it comprises of black women with black children. And there we also process a lot of this, a lot of the pain. So having those two groups have been really instrumental in my life. And then also just being around my son, And, you know, my mom and, you know, just being available and loving them and just having people in my life that I know love me and care for me. You know, of course, it always it's helpful to be able to go to a spa, but you can't do that right now. So I rely deeply on that. And most of all, I try to get rest. (laughs) to <laughs> that's a form of resistance as well when you unplug and you just rest right um so those are some of the things that I can think of right now that sustains me and uh, support me in this work how about you that's wonderful
0: I have not traditionally I have not been very successful at it but I'm learning that there is no sustainability if I don't tried to exercise some form of self care. And so I speak to my mother pretty much every day and we kind of, kind of diffuse the anger and rage by just bringing it out, whatever it is, like the current state of politics or um, the everyday micro macro aggressions that take place, just the news, turning on the TV, opening your phone. And so I think that um, she has been uh, an incredible support in that way. Also trying to breathe and like you said, rest, set aside time and also recognize what's happening and that um, like racism is real and it can make you think that you're going crazy. Um, but I, I'm so glad that the, the the language is growing and expanding so that we can feel a sense of, so that we can feel uh, a greater connection and then a greater kind of um, solidarity and validation to our experiences. And I think that that's the power of like this conversation right here. And I appreciate you so very much for being on the Roots of the Spirit podcast, for having me on your podcast. And there's one signature question that I have on my podcast, Dr. Christiana Best, what are the roots of your spirit? Oh, that's
1: so important. Um, The roots of my spirit is, uh, remembering my history, it's remembering my culture, my country, those safe places um, in Grenada that nurtured me as a child when I was without my parents. Both were in, in one was in Europe, the other one was in the United States. So. That's the root, always going back to those safe spaces and feeling the nurturance of it. The roots of my spirit also is my belief in God, a higher being, so making connections to that. And the way I manifest it is by walking. And, you know, I've been walking a lot. And so when I walk, I try to make those connections. Actually, when I said that um, it, it's going back home, there's a beach at home called Granite's Beach that just makes me feel so alive. And so standing on the sand and looking out at the ocean and just swimming in the ocean is such an, a way. And, I, and that was one of the things I didn't get to do this year because I was scheduled to go in March, which was at the beginning of the pandemic. But um, every year I tried to get back to my country and to that beach to just take it all in and just nurture myself because it's what it's how how I feel most alive. I really appreciate it this has been powerful and beautiful and
0: transformative so I appreciate you very much super super full of gratitude. Thank you
1: as well I appreciate you as well.
0: As a reminder, you are cordially welcome to join Women's Activism NYC on Women's Equality Day, August 26th from 1 to 4 p.m. for our write-in. I will put the details in the show notes, but you will have the golden opportunity to hear from Dr. Best as she is our keynote speaker. You are also invited to contribute stories of everyday, amazing, remarkable women who have made a difference in your lives or communities by logging on to www.womensactivism.nyc. When you write a story about a woman and contribute it to the archive, you are literally writing them into history because the stories collected will then be preserved in the municipal archives in perpetuity. So just think about it. Future generations can come to the archives and actually pull up a story written by you literally expanding the narrative to grow and expand and diversify the beautiful tapestry of women's stories and voices that we are capturing, all in an effort to collect 20,000 stories by the close of 2020.